Better Call Saul Season 5, Episode 8, Bagman, is over, but we're just getting started here at Post Show Recaps. Hello again, everyone. I am Antonio Mazzaro. As always, it is a true pleasure to be joined by my bagman, Josh Wiggler. Josh, how are you? Sorry, you caught me uh, <laughs> drinking from my uh, water bottle. Real is it quick. is it water you're drinking? Mm-hmm, I promise. That's a that says Davis and Maine on your water bottle. Are you sure? It's lemon lime Gatorade. Get your head out of the gutter. Water oh is better. God. Water is better. I know. A bag man. Oh my god. This is the return of Vince Gilligan to the directorial seat here in the Better Call Saul Breaking Bad universe. The much ballyhooed bag man, Antonio. And this is a stressful time at the movies, as they say. It is a it it's is, a, a killer ride. This it's one. a killer ride. <laughs> breaking Saul, as you might say, very Breaking Bad like episode of Better Call Saul. Certainly not an original take, and certainly not the first Breaking Bad type stuff on this series. Considering we have a lot of characters from Breaking Bad doing their thing on Better Call Saul, but this is Vince Gilligan from Breaking Bad doing Breaking Bad things on Better Call Saul. This is two characters in a desert. This is four days out. They are literally in Tahajuli. This is uh, some of the same places we've seen in episodes like Osmandius from Breaking Bad. So we are in well-tread territory here. And yet it was a phenomenal uh, episode of TV in terms of the I way it was it. put together. I loved it. I loved it. I, I love the way that this is. I, I think that something like this needed to happen. Uh, I think that this is a necessary episode for the forward momentum of the show. I think in many ways, this episode is like sort of the the, the culmination of so much that's come before it. Um, the the climax of the episode is is literally Jimmy um, throwing his entire life on the line where it's either like kill me now or let me get out of here with the money. But like one of these two things is going to have to happen and I'm going to have to throw myself out there in order to do it. And he's wandering out with the, with the bags of cash. He's got the uh, he's got the 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 space blanket on. He's wearing Chuck McGill on his back. He's got the Davis and Maine cup. It's filled with with his own urine. Uh, the color theory of of the Better Call Saul and Breaking Bad universe alive and well there as he's forced to you know take a big old sip of his own stuff. Uh, you know that he's been trying to peddle for all of these years uh, in in so many different ways as he's been peeing on people's legs and telling them it's raining uh, as as such a hallmark of his career. It just it felt like this was the colliding event. And you would think that after surviving something like this, the natural human reaction would be to like never, ever, 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 ever ever let yourself get into a situation even remotely resembling these circumstances ever again. And I actually think that while that's what your instincts would say, I think all too commonly you find that someone walks away from like a car wreck like this. And I've been talking about this, this show is as a slow motion car wreck. And here we, we end the episode with this gigantic car wreck. <laughs> it's a fast uh, motion one, you know, real, real swift car wreck. Um, and I think that there is probably, you know, we know who Saul Goodman is going to go on to become. We know that this is not going to be the thing that scares him straight. If anything, it might end up being the thing that galvanizes him to break worse. And it might be because he thinks that he's activated the, the contra code, right? That like he's he's hit the cheat codes and he's on God <laughs> mode now. And if he survived what happened out here, he could survive anything. Antonio, you mentioned to Hodgley, uh, which if you're a Breaking Bad fan, that is a that is a, a, a name that is rather triggering on 
on multiple fronts. But it's the it's the desert landscape in in New Mexico where Walter White and Jesse Pinkman first cooked their first batch of crystal meth all the way back in Breaking Bad. It's where Walt hid his money, his barrels of money in Breaking Bad. It's where whatever it's where everything that happened to Hank happened out there. Uh, Antonio, you and I, uh, not terribly long ago, closed out shop on a show that we had been covering from almost the jump, but we've talked about every single episode of Mr. Robot. And on Mr. Robot, there was the conversation about a certain um, set piece, a certain location uh, in the Mr. Robot universe that is like potentially like the nexus of evil on Earth, like hell on Earth. Uh, is Tohajali <laughs> the hell on Earth of the Breaking Bad universe? Do you have to go through a tremendous ordeal here in order to uh, to to pass as a as a main principal player in the Breaking Bad universe? Because Walt and Jesse have done it, and now so too have Jimmy and Mike. You didn't see the skee ball along the side there? Uh, no, the I arcade missed games. Missed no, that. you're you're right, and it is. Uh, look, the desert represents so much to so many, uh, and it is uh, when you say we needed an episode like this. Uh, to galvanize or to bring together so much of what has gone before. The bagman. The bagman, if you will, to put a bag around uh, Jimmy McGill and to let uh, let Saul Goodman really be Saul Goodman. That's the thing that we've talked about a ton on this podcast and throughout the series. Like, when's he going to become Saul Goodman? When's he going to become Saul Goodman? And he became Saul Goodman at the end of last season or at the beginning of this season, officially changing his name. And we've seen him sort of uh, hint at it when he's blowing up at Howard, for example, and a lot of his own self-loathing is coming out. The moment before that, we are still seeing his distorted face in the wall there, and we're we're seeing Jimmy McGill look at the victim's family and we're seeing Saul Goodman's horrible funhouse mirror reflection there as the other half of him. And we see that coming out with Howard about the, you know, and it is that dichotomy again of, as you pointed out in the podcast last week, beginning that uh, the series with him giving a very similar speech to Howard for jocular comedic effect and doing it here because he feels it. And we saw it earlier in the season when he's talking to the 50% off crew uh, and he pulls the same move that Hank sort of pulled when he turns around to walk away and he comes back and he, he, he makes him, you know, makes fun of free legal counsel, something that he's been most of his career. Uh, and he really says like, you, you're getting a deal with me. And he, he's starting to believe his own hype. So it's interesting because we know Saul Goodman, the character is a guy who did that and believed his own hype and had this confidence. Uh, but there's been this sort of, uh, there's this sort of trick there where he's still Jimmy McGill acting like Saul Goodman and he's, he's t dipping his toes in the water. And I think what we saw tonight was like a dark night of the Saul, if, if yeah. you will. Yeah, like he was, yeah. he didn't find God at the end though. What he found was he found that he is the guy who will drink his own pee and he is the guy who will put his life on the line. And he is, he does want to be a friend to the cartel. It turns out. Uh, maybe not in the way that he had anticipated, but what you're talking about, somebody gets in a car wreck and maybe never wants to get in a car again, but then there are other people who become adrenaline junkies, right? Or there are people who experience something and then they chase it. They try to experience it again. Uh, they get off on it in some way, shape or form. I think what we're seeing here with Jimmy McGill is, is somebody who had to come to grips with a lot of what was going on. And it's not just his own transformation and metamorphosis that he's coming to grips with. He's literally seeing space blankets, Josh. His second best lawyer cup gets a bullet in it right. uh, and he's coming to close he's coming closer with mike which is something that when we look at mike and saul and breaking bad they have a very close working relationship mike and jimmy have been a little bit at arm's length such that 
I have to imagine Jimmy McGill could not believe uh, when it was Mike that was standing over him after that shootout. Yeah, uh, if, if not for the fact that he had come over uh, in in one of the recent episodes uh, right. to to his apartment, and like he now knows that like we're we're hovering around similar circles. Right. Um, otherwise, like this would have been a full full blindside you're um, the guy from the toll booth you're the guy from right. the booth at the parking lot and yeah you had a beef with some cops once big deal but no this is this now you're a sniper ninja who can take out an entire group of of would-be drug robbers like this is insane so and he had, a, to, he had like, to come no, closer to mike even even in a in an episode that that has a really good runtime has like a very significant runtime um you're not getting uh and these two characters are you know they're they're trekking through the through the desert in a, a really brutal physical way where they're stopping down every once in a while um but there isn't like a lot of chit chat about like Oh, so you're a ninja now, you know, yeah, <laughs> like right. there's, there's nothing like that. Um, I think it was it was a, it, it was really vital because this show has ended up becoming um, a couple of shows in one, as, yes. as has been discussed a lot. Uh, it's the Jimmy show. It's the Mike show. Uh, it's the Gus show to a degree. But I think that you can you can tack that onto the Mike show uh, in a way that you can't tack it onto the Jimmy show. Uh, and I think. You and I have been sort of lamenting to a degree. I think maybe that's uh, not not quite the right word for this, um, but we've both been we've both been kind of like contemplating like, is the show going to give us something that lets us know why Mike is now doing the things that he's doing? Where is Mike's head at and all of this? Um, and whether or not his his like monologue to Jimmy about I know why I'm out here, I'm out here, you know, without saying the the words like I'm out here for my daughter in law, I'm out here for Kaylee, uh, I'm out here because I don't really give a shit about what happens to me. But if I can make life better for them, I'll just do whatever. Like, it feels like he has now like looked into the eye of I've done bad things. I'm choosing the side of the of the of the better of two evils. I'm signing my certificate on that. And anything that I have to do to make life easier for them, if it involves using my ninja skills to assassinate a bunch of people, I'm going to do that. And that's why I'm going to survive here. And that's why I'm going to get out of this desert just to make sure that that is still going on. Um, I, I thought that that was really good and impactful. And I think I still want to know a little bit more about the Mike and Gus stuff. I want to get a really good, significant Mike and Gus scene before all is said and done here. But I think to have that moment of clarity surrounding Mike Ehrman Trout coexisting in the literal physical space as Jimmy McGill for the first time in a really long time, these two characters having um, these, I think, enormous moments of transformation um, in concert with one another. Even if they're not the chummiest characters on Breaking Bad, you know, part of what Better Call Saul is establishing is that these two people do have this history, that they do have this Rosencrantz and Guildenstern quality about them that's not being seen on Breaking Bad. This is their beef, right? Like this is the meat on right. those bones. This is the this is uh, this is what's between the, the the curtain calls from Breaking Bad. Prequel territory. And it's really and it's 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 often really compelling stuff. It's it's often really compelling on its own. Um, but it can be hard because of what we know about them from Breaking Bad to imagine the scenarios where they're really looped in together. 
But if nothing else, Antonio, you know, for me, like this, uh, seeing the two of them really in the foxhole together, like really in the shit together, drinking piss together, basically, uh, really, uh, you know, assassinating a man together. You know, Jimmy watching people get murked uh, by by Mike's actions and then joining forces with him at the end of believing enough in Mike to be like, you better get that gun ready as he's going out on his own. Cause he's not just going to like sit around and wait this guy out anymore. He's going to slip and Jimmy, this guy into his, into a brutal de- demise. Mike has the kill shot, but Jimmy is equally culpable in killing this man. Um, to, and to I think s- that's when he wins Mike's respect, right? He finally wins Mike's respect by doing that. But what I was going to say is that I think there's there's a moment in Breaking Bad, and I don't remember exactly where it goes down. But the, don't like Mike and and Jimmy like straight up come to blows at one point. They like tussle on the ground at one point. Like something super frustrating is happening, and they get very physical with each other. And it's like the kind of like physicality that exists between two people who have been through some shit together um they had been through things together here on the show already so far but so much of better call saul has been about their respective baggage and here they both became the bagman you know here they both became bagman together uh bagman begins you know this is really like the joining of those two storylines in a way that uh that collides them in a really meaningful way that they almost don't need to have another interaction together ever again once they get out of the road. And I'm sure that they they will. Um, and I would still buy the relationship that they have in Breaking Bad in a way now that maybe I wouldn't have fully bought before. Uh, so I thought that this was a, an incredible episode as far as forging the relationship between uh, Jimmy and Mike. These aren't friends. These aren't brothers, but these are two people on uh, independent paths that are intertwining with one another. And they are two people who have seen each other at the edge. These are two people who needed each other to survive once upon a time when survival was definitely not a foregone conclusion, even if it was, you know, narratively a foregone conclusion because they got to live long enough to make it to Breaking Bad. And that's a, I mean, that's an interesting part of the, the whole equation too, right? Is that because we know as, as an audience that they do live long enough to make it to Breaking Bad, the, the grist of the episode, if you will, has to come from their characters relating to each other. And it has to come from what they share together. It has to come from the moments where Jimmy McGill gives up and where Mike stands over him and Mike tells Jimmy that's why he can go on. And then it has to come from Mike's realization that Jimmy is sticking his neck out and Mike being there for Jimmy and Jimmy putting his faith in Mike the way he did. So that's where the real meat of the episode has to come from because the suspense, I mean, it's great. And kudos to them for executing on that because we knew the characters were going to live. Um, your mileage may vary certainly uh, as to whether that worked as much for you or not. Uh, but for me, I was never like, well, this is dumb because I know these guys are going to live. There was not I was, a, a second of that for me. Right. And I know there were for other people. We got some feedback to that extent. And yeah, I don't want to put are you words watching? in their mouth. What are you watching is, well, is, is my reaction to that is like this. This is a prequel. You know that they're going to make it. And I and I think that the tension for Better Call Saul has has not ever once been about will Jimmy and Mike die because Jimmy makes it through Breaking Bad and Mike does not. And we know that um, the tension has always been. Uh, how does, how does, and, and I think it's something that we, we started digging into a few podcasts ago, this idea of becoming someone like putting on armor, uh, deciding to go out into the world with, with a persona to, to mask yourself under deciding to transform yourself 
for reasons, whatever those reasons are. Uh, it's it's about summoning Saul Goodman. Uh, for Jimmy, that's literally Saul Goodman. For Mike, that's becoming uh, the fixer for the freeing operation. Um, and the tension here in this episode, for me, all the way through, is very consistent with what the tension of the entire enterprise of Better Call Saul has been. It's not about whether or not they're going to live or die. It's about how awful is this going to get that is it's going to and and how indelible are these situations going to become that it's going to push these people in the direction that we know that they are ultimately going to become. Um, and I think that there is uh, an outstanding amount of tension in that stuff. And I, I, I feel that you agree with that. And, and, yes. I'm, I, and I know that I'm, I'm, I'm coming off a little harshly, but like, I think that this is the show. I think that this, this, this episode is a severe embodiment of the show and that this has been, this is this is uh you know this is a, a straw breaking moment. The dam is bursting here in Bagman. Um, I know that there was a lot of hype behind Bagman and Peter Gould going online and being like, "You're not going to want to miss this one live." And does that set up a lot of expectations of like, "Oh, they're going to bring in Jesse. Oh, they're going to bring in Walt. Uh, oh my God, they're gonna they're gonna kill Kim in this one." Uh, and like, it's it's impossible to to properly interact with fans and fan expectation if you're going to play that game. I think. Like people are always just going to have their feelings. They're going to they're going to set their bars to whatever they're going to be set. Um, But for me, I think it absolutely meets that hype because this in so many ways, this episode is the thesis statement. You know, they've Jimmy McGill has crossed a Rubicon that he will never be able to uncross. And we've been able to say that uh, about a lot of things in the past. But he has blood on his hands now. You know, he has blood on his hands in a in a very literal way. Um, it's not just that he's done things that got, you know, his brother killed uh, or, you know, it's not just that he's pushed circumstances into a direction where, you know, and we'll have to talk about that. Like Kim looks like she's in a very, very, very dangerous oh boy. spot. I don't, do we have I, to talk about that? I mean, for the purposes of the listeners, unfortunately, we must. Um, but this is a situation where Jimmy signing on for a thing resulted in him nearly getting his head blown off in a way that he was not going to be able to talk his way out of. We're a long way from Tuco Salamanca in the desert with twins. There was no talking his way out of this one. He has blood and brain matter splashed upon him. His car is destroyed. His old life uh, you know, thrown into a ditch. He can't go back to that. Uh, I think that that's very symbolic. Uh, and he goes out with the space blanket on, with Chuck McGill on, and fully slipping Jimmy's a man to death. He fully slipping Jimmy's a man within Mike's crosshairs and gets this guy obliterated. Uh, this is it. This is what you've been waiting for. Uh, I think in so many ways, this is what you've been waiting for. And it's not just that it's like palpable, violent action. And that's exciting because that's like a little more breaking bad than what we've gotten on Better Call Saul in the past. But this is a transformative moment. This is metamorphosis. It's ugly. It's terrible. But you knew that that's what this was. The whole journey has been. But I like Jimmy. I don't want him to do this. I don't want to see him become Saul Goodman. And yet that's been the inevitability and something really profound and powerful and awful and ugly and as ugly as getting into a situation where you got to drink your own piss had to happen in order to believably move him into this space, I think. And it just occurred. So as far as the whole purpose of this show, the whole idea of this show of 
taking a guy and turning much in the same vein as as Breaking Bad of, you know, taking the 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 mild mannered science teacher and turning him into Scarface. It's not to that level of extreme, but it is about pushing a guy like Jimmy into such a state of desperation that he is just going to be the in his mind, a guy who shoots thunderbolts out of his fingers and walks within worlds you can't possibly imagine. He needed to walk in this world and he did with, you know, hundreds and hundreds of pounds of millions of dollars on his back and a space blanket on his back, like the literal armor that he's wearing in this scene, Antonio. It's so brilliantly written to me. It's so brilliantly shot to me that he is carrying all of the baggage of Better Call Saul on his person. He's yeah, got his Davison main water bottle. He's got the Davison main water bottle. He, you know, he got the, the, the Kim gift shot to shit. Yep. He's got the space blanket. He's Everything he's been doing is to is to to gain top dollar so that he can make the money that he feels he's owed. And he's nearly baking, breaking his back in order to to drag that stuff. He's ripping the money and he still has to run back and get the stuff. Uh, and that's all happening because he's trying to take a shortcut. The chickens came home to roost in a very significant way in Bagman. And I'm not out here necessarily saying like Bagman instant number one best episode of Better Call Saul. But it's the climax up to this point. Um, everything has been building here. And the fact that we've got two more episodes this season is uh, is is powerful, powerful so, place to be in. I agree with that. And I'm curious, though, when you say that he had to do all these things, and I, I agree from a narrative standpoint, from this is where the writing is going standpoint, we need a climax with this guy. He's been teasing around it. Uh, he's been edging toward it. Uh, and so it's time. Oh, My boy. question for you is earlier in the episode, when the, the proposal has been made to him last episode, uh, and we've got basically, we know ultimately what he has to do. Um, he has to be the guy to pick this up. And he's telling Kim about this. And he's saying, like, you've got this all wrong. It's nothing. I'm his lawyer. I'm just going to go pick up bail money, just like you did with that public defender client. And she's saying, it's $7 million. Don't do like, this. Don't, don't do, do this. this. I, I, I want to talk about those aspects of the scene, and, I, and we will. But what I want to know from you is, did he know that he needed to do this? Was he that delusional? That he thought, oh, nothing could go wrong. This will be just me and my little esteem. And no one's ever had more than $5 in one of these. Like, was he lying to himself? Was he scared? He seemed fine. He was a little nervous about like, nervous. yo soy abogado, yo soy abogado. But, but when he's talking to Kim and basically saying like, it's going to be fine. Did he believe that himself? Or where was his head at? going into the desert. Did he just think, I mean, because we have that great scene with he and Lala where Lala proposes it and he says, I don't want to do it. Sorry. Pick another guy for that. Lala folds up the newspaper, says fine. And then as Jimmy's walking out, uh, Saul Goodman says a hundred thousand, a yeah. hundred thousand. And yeah. he stands up, he bucks up a little bit to La to Lalo. And he says like, that's barely 2% commission. Like, and I think I'm worth it if I'm the only guy for this. So he, he sticks his, his back up and says, I'm going to do this. And I want to do this hundred thousand dollars. I want to be valued. You're saying I'm the guy. So where was his head going to the desert? Was his hubris in the way or yes. was he dumb? You think it was hubris? Hubris. Yeah. Yeah, I do. And, and I think we've seen him make these kinds of decisions so many times along the way uh, that it's a, it's a decision that is outstandingly consistent with Jimmy uh, of always being in places where like, 
he has the option to not follow through on a very bad idea. But if he can just like raise the bar just a little bit, make it just that little bit extra worth it, he'll go with it. Um, and he makes the calculus that 100K is worth this risk. Uh, and I think that he has like a history of being the kind of guy uh it's funny at, at uh my my friend who was uh the best man at his brother's wedding told a speech about like the dynamic between the two of them as brothers and that uh the the friend the best man uh just kind of like stumbles his way through life and often just like sort of messes everything up um but his brother is the kind of guy that he would in the middle of a shootout like trip down the stairs roll all the way down to the bottom of the stairs, banging every bone along the way. And yet somehow when he hits the bottom of the well, he would land on two feet guns up. Uh, And that is probably like what Jimmy considers himself is that he's been through the shit. He's been arrested. uh, He's been disbarred, but he's gotten it all back and he's always capable of getting it back. And it's always worth the gamble. He's a gambling man. He's an addict. You know, he's an addict yeah. in, in yep. many in many meaningful ways. Uh, and he, it's a compulsive behavior and he can't help himself. He cannot leave that room without just seeing like, all right, for me, it would be worth doing if I can get 100K. Can I get Lalo to tell me 100K? I raised my fee up to a certain amount that I probably could have raised it even higher because didn't Lalo say like, let's call it an even seven, right? Like back in uh, in. Uh, in uh, Namaste or was, or yeah, in the third episode, exactly. rather, in the third yeah. episode. Um, so why not just like push it that little bit further? He's a gambler. And we know that like in the in the long haul of things, at least through the gene portion of Jimmy McGill's life, that the gambling is as it often does, unfortunately, for people who are addicted to this kind of behavior. It's going to get him in trouble with the bookie. You know, <laughs> the bookie man <laughs> is coming. Um, but I, I don't think it's like him being... I think saying it's him being stupid is uh, just not entirely fair to the compulsion and the problem um, and the, the the deep, bitter resentment that he has towards the world that he feels is very earned. And also the history of sheer luck and ingenuity he, he sees when he looks upon his own resume. Uh, he thinks that he can pull this off. Um, I think that's where he's coming from. And he is nervous when he meets with the cousins, but then he may as well be singing life is a highway right. on the way home. Like he's <laughs> yeah. literally singing, you know, and yeah, he he's making up his own well. song about a dollar in his pocket. Right. Mm-hmm. You yeah. know, so, uh, so, I mean, I think he's a little bit naive in that regard. I think, I think you're right. I think it's a, a little bit like he, he gets off on the juice. He, he likes to gamble and he feels like, uh, he just won a big pot, right? And oh, I'm going to be fine. Like, I don't, I can, you know, I, that wasn't luck. I'm not lucky here. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm fine. This is how things should go. And then he steps right back in it again. In terms of the stepping back in it, um, when we see the cold open, we see the cousins, we see them very much in tandem as usual. Uh, and we see their incredible wherever they are i this is like a safe house there's all these like very high-end vehicles that have been according to the insider podcast they were just like ported in like they were brought in uh and people were afraid of even moving equipment near them for fear of scratching them up but we see art pieces here there's like just just a giant count room a giant stash room and then as they leave with the money we see somebody calling uh someone and saying i've got something for him if he's still interested. So my question is, 
if you're just trying to estimate here who the people were that got involved with trying to take the seven million, was Gus involved? Was this call to tip off Mike? Mike seemed to be tracking Jimmy via the gas cap, uh, which Mike pulled out of his that was car. Great. Yeah, people, yeah, people may have missed that, but you know, a great nod to to Mike and and Gus Spring's first contact with each other in season three uh, when he's dismantling the car and finds the tracker in the in the gas right. can. Uh, that was so, cute. That seemed to be how Mike had kept tabs on Jimmy, right. which leaves me to wonder, like, He's what? Like, oh, neat trick. Going to take that with yeah, me. Put uh, that one right in the arsenal. Yeah, just write so that down. the question is, like, who was this guy calling? And are they people we know? Who is the him? Yeah, is it I don't Fring? Know. Is Fring playing both sides against the middle? Like, what is, what's in play here? Do you have any ideas? Yeah, I'll filibuster for a little while in case you need to catch a breath, because what I would love to be able to do for you right now is come back to you with a really red hot theory about who was being <laughs> called, but I'm, I'm totally in the dark on it. Yeah, I don't um, know either. I mean, it, it, su- it suggests to me that it's not Fring, right? Because my Mike right. is working for Fring and Jimmy asks Mike, like, did you know this was going to happen? And he says, if I knew it was going to be like this, uh, I, I would have I brought some guys with me. Like, you know, he wouldn't have just come with his sniper rifle. He would have had a better plan. Um, so I, I can't imagine that that call is going to Gus. Um, I wonder if it's going to Lalo himself. Um, and if the idea is... You rip that money off, and then that's your that's your nut, that's your seed money, and you get seven more million to get you bailed out. Uh, and then once you're bailed out, you take the seven million that you ripped off, and you're gone. Uh, and I, I do so. I do wonder if if maybe Lalo was the he him. D- so he's like trying to double it up. He's, yeah, he's yeah, like like you would. You you're playing, you know, like you're playing both hands at the same time. Like that's a possibility. Th- a friend a cra- is a possibility. A, that's a crazy thing to do for a guy who is currently in prison who needs to get seven million dollars to get bailed out and yet this is also a guy who's currently in prison because he plunged through the roof of a bank and climbed through the ceiling and out the other side of the ceiling and murdered the bank teller uh so lalo (laughs) is an insane person allegedly and he he himself is a gambler guilty he himself is a gambler so you know that that's a that's a gambling man move what you're describing um but as far as like the players that are on the board for for something like this like who else is going to be involved in that unless and you and i were talking about this on the podcast uh most recently um when we were talking about uh jmm um the idea of can gus make it the cartel's idea to put a stop to lalo Right. right, because Lalo's being so disruptive. So, could it be someone who is cartel related, wanting to like stop gap the money because they already have the idea? And when Gus is going to, you know, be a, in a meeting of the minds with uh, Don Eladio and uh, his associate, whose name I always forget, uh, Juan, Juan Bosa, Bolsa, right? yeah. Juan Bolsa, uh, that like Juan Bolsa's like, yeah, we tried to stop that from happening. Gus like. Oh, well, great. Okay. So, yeah, I mean, I definitely think like you have the right instinct and we should probably uh, take this to the next level. Well, and that's what you just said is also kind of a point in favor of it being Gus. Uh, Gus is playing against himself a lot of this time. You can imagine if that's cartel money, right? If that's what was a cartel house and not a Salamanca house, or if that was cartel money and not just purely Salamanca money, but if that or even if it's Salamanca money that is bound for the cartel, it is seven million 
dollars. Seven, not seven thousand, seven million. And so if Lalo's the kind of guy who puts his lawyer out there, I mean, there, this is what his plan was, is to send Jimmy McGillan in esteem and it gets easily ripped off like that. And they lose seven million. That's a lot more significant than Gus having problems because Los Pollos Hermanos burns down because he's got heat. Com- the sort of little interruptions with one stash house, like the things that are happening as a result of the Lalo and Gus, like Cold War. Um, if Gus takes this affirmative action and causes Lalo to lose $7 million of money that was due for the cartel, I got to feel like that's a much bigger impact in terms of what you're talking about. Uh, and yet, I, I don't know if Gus wanted Jimmy killed. Was Mike following Jimmy um, because Mike engaged? There are a lot of players on the board here. And when you uh, like just like loosely refer to one of them as him. Um, it's, it's questionable. Is this him? Somebody we've already seen. It seems like it would be. If that's the case, then there aren't too many hymns in play. Of course, it could be someone else from the breaking bad universe that we haven't seen yet. Um, unlikely that it's like one of these other drug related people, uh, that, that Walter White dealt with over the years, but it's possible. Uh, but I think it's far more likely that it is Gus and Gus is trying to expose Lalo and make him look bad. Jimmy, somehow in the crosshairs maybe gus doesn't give a shit about jimmy but mike does that's what i was gonna say is that like gus would gus has you know only met jimmy very tangentially uh helping him throw out some trash and helping him find the watch uh that he (laughs) that he lost in the trash at poyos hermanos in (laughs) gus's first scene of the show um but you know he wouldn't give a crap about jimmy and if jimmy gets killed that's fine and then um mike is just there as like is Mike just there on his own? But like, then you have to ask the question, does Mike give a shit enough about Jimmy McGill that he would be driving all the way down here to be tracking Jimmy? And would Mike give enough of a shit about Jimmy McGill that he's going to kill Gus Fring soldiers in order to keep Jimmy alive? This feels like a lot for Mike to throw out on the line for Jimmy, who I think he would, he would look at that. And if it was his job at this point, Based on what we seem to know of where uh, Mike's allegiances lie right now, you imagine like Mike doing like sort of that signature Jonathan Banks look of him just being like, yeah, you know, well, and just and looking very, from the microscope Mike's, and letting it go. Mike's very concerned, and this episode is part of it, and he says it. He's very concerned with who's in the game. Like she's right. in the game now. Oh, no, yeah, no, like, no, she is he, though. He, uh, and we will, we will talk. Uh, we, I, we're, I think we're. We're filibustering just generally with 45 minutes of podcast, not to get to the point where we have to talk about the scene with Kim's. Um, but we, <laughs> Chef Kim's, <laughs> Chef Kim's, uh, we, we, we have to unfortunately get there at some point. But Mike is very concerned with who's in the game and who's not. And he said that to Nacho as well. Like you got into this ice wide open. He's talked about his own mantra of playing the, the hand that he's dealt. Uh, so in some respects, like he maybe felt like, and, and you've, I think, wisely gone back and pointed to the signpost that is his conversation with uh, Price, uh, the player, uh, where he basically says, like, you know, you're a criminal now. Good criminal, bad criminal, that's up to you. Uh, this is, this is Mike has this, like, sliding scale of involvement on these things. And remember, he was a dirty cop to begin with, and his son being a dirty cop or not being a dirty cop was huge source of friction that caused his son ultimately to die is why Mike blames himself. It is, uh, it, it is involved with the decision he makes with Werner, because Werner was in the game of course he had to know that this what they're digging was not good but he wasn't really in the game and all he did was try to get away so there's all 
and Werner's wife was certainly not in the game. So Mike has this, these lines that he draws around who's involved and who isn't. And you can imagine he's the one who says, you got to get Salamanca out of jail. He's the one who plops that file in his lap. And yes, he's carrying water for Gus, but he's involving Jimmy in a very direct way that leads to Jimmy having to go get the bail money. And so Mike may be interceding not on the behalf of Gus, but just on behalf of, of Jimmy. I don't know. These might not have been Gus's like number one guys. They might have, if you're Gus, do you really want to hire guys that are going to be tied directly to you? You probably want to use guys that aren't going to be directly. Gus may not have even wanted the seven million. It just matters to him that Lalo loses it. It doesn't really matter who gets it. So these might have just been hired guys that Gus tipped off. We have no idea. Is there a universe where uh, the are you interested is Nacho? Is there a, is there a world where Nacho has access to people who could like be in on a heist like that? Nacho can can snag the seven million dollars and get himself and Papa out of town. It's funny because we have uh, Nacho being proposed as the bag man by Jimmy uh, in that original scene uh, that I think Quentin Tarantino directed it because we got a really big shot of Lalo's feet. But <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, he but Lalo's reaction to that is uh, Ignacio. Oh yeah, you know uh, he'd be good for some stuff. He's good for lots of things. Uh, but with seven million, a guy like that, you know, he can get real dumb real fast. So it's at least considered by the show that Nacho could have some role in this. I think it's far more likely that if you're talking about who has tendrils that touch everything, including insiders in yeah. like the, the holy of holies of the cartel here. It's way more likely that it's Fring uh, and not that it's Nacho. But it's possible. Uh, it doesn't seem but like Nacho, Nacho's play. Nacho, Nacho having a line on like where the Salamanca, like, you know, Scrooge McDuck safe is, right? Like right. Him, him having a line on, on where that is would make some level of sense. <laughs> Uh, because I'm picturing Nacho swimming through a river of coins and spitting I mean, it's them out. A glorious image. Put some pants on, sir. <laughs> uh, but like he, how'd you know I didn't have pants on? <laughs> oh, that's Sorry. you. Uh, you know, he he's been he was Hector's guy for a while. So who knows what he knows through that? It's true. Been, Tuco been, Tuco's got a big mouth. You know exactly. So like for him to know what the Salamancas have is not entirely unreasonable. Uh, and we have seen. Uh, we've seen Nacho try to make moves to get out of Dodge and we have not seen the moves necessarily like be literally made. We have like found out about them, right? Like when Papa comes to Nacho and says like, oh, this major offer just came my way and blah, blah, blah. Did we see any of that happen? No. And like at first Nacho's like playing it down and then like the 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 you know the acting in the scene very clear and the writing very clearly conveys that yeah like Nacho is trying to do this thing to convince his dad to get out of town but if Nacho thinks that he can snag this money especially while Lalo's in the hole uh, can he just abscond with it uh, does he have enough people that he could promise a share of because he's had dealings with the Salamancas before. Um, and we're always nervous for Nacho at this point. Certainly if you're a fan of the character and if like you feel empathy for his plight of wanting to get his dad out of the game, uh, we know that, uh, that, you know, he's been, you know, in his conversations with Mike, it's like, all right, get me out of here. And Mike's like, well, he's not done yet. Is he, uh, like could, is it beyond Nacho to have this reach to have the hookup with a guy who works there at the Salamanca safe house uh, to, to have him have a call and be like, Hey, some, something that might interest you. Like, is, is there a possibility there? I don't think it's so far out of left field. And I, I think that it's, it's, 
It's maybe not as plausible as it being just outright Lalo, outright Gus, but I think it's probably more plausible than anyone I can imagine from the Breaking Bad universe that would show up as a surprise here. Um, There's no one really from that side of the universe that stands out and makes sense to me. Nacho would be my dark horse candidate here. Maybe it was Gil Bedeker. <laughs> I just really want you to build the thing. Yes. <laughs> I want to film some karaoke videos, okay? Like, I mean, seriously, like, is there anyone from Breaking Bad who could then, like, magically show up here on Better Call Saul as the guy who got that call? For me, there really isn't. At first, I thought, before. so taking aside what happened in the episode, when the call is placed, I wondered if it was DEA. Like, I wondered if we were going to see Hank again, and that was a snitch tip. Like, and I'm tipping you off that there's going to be a major money run, uh, and that this is going to get interrupted through no fault of Jimmy's, but Lalo's going to think that Jimmy dimed him out to the DEA, and that it was all, I thought it was going to be a DEA thing. Then when they all got killed, I knew it wasn't DEA anymore. Uh, I knew that the head, this was not DEA, uh, the, you know, the, the neck chop gesture that you can't make in the NFL. Like, I knew that it wasn't DEA at that point, but for a while, I thought maybe that it was, uh, Danny Trey host character uh, mm-hmm. or oh, something something yeah. from Breaking Bad uh, in the early days uh, or someone like that uh, that we were going to bring into the mix um, that that was involved Tortuga. or that was a player yeah. or something like that yeah. uh, or that the DEA was going to be involved in some way. I thought maybe it was that. And I suppose it still could be, um, but I think it's far more likely that it's a little Gus. cute by half, right? Like, yeah. like suddenly it's like, all right, here we are. Entering the Better Call Saul end game, we've got one season left plus two episodes. Uh, here he comes, the Trejo. Uh, Tor- Tortuga himself is Atreyu. now the big is now the big bad of, <laughs> of Better Call Saul. Like it's cute, we love Trejo, man. But uh, maybe maybe keep this one machete uh, in its sheath. Yeah, I mean, so that that's that was I was thinking like along those lines, but I agree. Like, I just for me, it's far. It's most likely that it's Gus. Uh, I do think it's meant to be a mystery that we're still trying to sort out. I do agree with you, time wise, with one season left, it doesn't make a lot of sense to bring uh, Danny Trejo's character into the mix. Uh, but I, I think the fact that that Hank if it's, is if working, it's Gu- if it's Gus, he really threw Mike into the shit, and like he's already had a hard time recording Mike. So yep. if if it is Gus, can Mike ever find out? No, 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 yeah. no, 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 no. But you know? we can. <laughs> yeah, right. You know, but we can. Uh, yeah. And I think that that can really make us think, oh, Gus Fring, you son of a bitch. Like, yeah. you did it again. Like, you are double dealing everybody here, and you're brilliant. And that only makes Walter White so much more formidable by all the work they're spending and all the time they're spending to make it clear how brilliant you are. Um, Gus is willing to burn down his own restaurants. Uh, he's willing to go to great lengths against his own interests in order to bring these things home. Uh and to work this game, this scheme against Lalo, I assume he has an end game. I assume the end game is going to be exposed to be uh, to expose Lalo. The thing is, we know that he can't come directly at Lalo because by doing that, he jeopardizes himself with Juan Bolsa and Don Eladio. So what does he have to do? He has to basically let Lalo make a fool of himself. So that's what he does by getting uh, Lalo put in jail. We quickly realize that that plan needs to be pivoted from because it's not working out. Lalo in jail is just as bad as Lalo outside. In fact, it might be worse uh, because he's saying a lot of things from the inside. He's acting a little crazier. We got to get the guy bailed out. So my thinking is this. If Gus's plan all along via Mike was to get Lalo thrown into jail and then immediately 
Gus pivots from this plan, uses the same guy in Mike to give the evidence back to Jimmy to get Lalo Bell out of jail. Either Gus really screwed up with his plan or it was his plan to get Lalo arrested and then to get Lalo bailed. And why would he want to get Lalo bailed? So he could get Lalo's bail money. That's the only thing you, you, I'm wondering, like, is that more proof that it's Gus? Because otherwise, Gus's plan to get Lalo arrested, he immediately pivots from and gets Lalo bailed out with literally the same guy in Mike who got him arrested, turning around and giving that evidence right over to Jimmy McGill. I think it's all part of Gus's plan. Uh, okay. And we'll see. We'll see how it plays out. No, it could be, theory, could be Tortuga. Could be Tortuga. Um, <laughs> could be Tarantino. Uh, it won't be tarantula. Let's not talk about that part. Well, not, we, we can leave the spider yeah, out of it. Leave that in um, upstate New York, please. Is there? Is there? Is there uh, I don't know. For for me, um, the the episode was just such a ride. I like. I, I would just kind of like to talk briefly about the experience because I want. I want to keep like pushing the Kim stuff uh, as far into the future of the podcast. I don't even possible. know what you're talking about. Uh, that I the ride of this episode, right? Like. And and the moment and it's directed by Vince Gilligan and you know it at this point and so you know it's going to be a big one in some capacity, um, but when Jimmy has uh, when Jimmy's at the well, Jimmy's at the well. When he, when he <laughs> what's that, Lassie? <laughs> when Jimmy, Jimmy fell when, into a well. When Jimmy's at the well, you'll know the one. Uh, it's just the one out there, and he's you yeah, know they're rehearsing. good guys. You'll like them. <laughs> <laughs> so funny jimmy and the cousins was, was you know too quick but but probably exactly the appropriate length uh and he gets the money from them and then they drive off and it goes off much better than it than he expected to and then there's still so much episode left and i think like at the point that he's embarked on the on the mission i think that you do expect that probably like this will be an episode where the fit hits the shan. Um, but that piece of it, he's getting away clean and then he's getting in the car and he's making up the song to himself. And then you see the car uh, getting onto the road behind him. And you're like, uh oh, that's no good. Uh, but it wasn't like, I think, until you see like the car on the other road, uh, like parallel to him that then starts speeding up. And that's the moment where like, OK, so this shit's about to get incredibly real. Um and then, like, the shootout happens, and, like, it, beco- it becomes pretty clear that something very violent has to occur because these are not guys that Jimmy's going to be able to talk his way out of. Like, these are not guys that are interested in taking him somewhere and holding him for ransom. These are guys who, if, if the story is going to follow the realistic narrative line, they are going to murder him right now. And this being Better Call Saul and us knowing that he lives at least to to make uh, Cinnabons in Omaha. He's not going to die here. But there's still that tension of like, okay, so what exactly is going to happen for this to stop? I think that like, just like seeing the the level of, of violence that's unleashed. And there is like, is there a degree of, uh, we had, we had a, uh, a listener, Ian Rice, write in about the episode uh, talking about how maybe there's like a little bit of a self-congratulatory quality to like, filming this big action set piece in this episode. And is that the big piece of why this is being hyped up? And for me, I, I didn't feel that because we were so locally grounded in Jimmy's perspective of the violence um, that like, you know, he is having, he's having in, in many ways, the, the fault. It's not the, it's not the exact shot, but it's 
Gus falling to the ground by the pool when uh, when the Hermano is uh, when yes, when, dedicado when, on Max when, when Max is killed or when Walt falls to the ground after seeing what happens to Hank. Like it's not quite that, but it is like that level of PTSD that's like instantly washing over Jimmy. And I think that the show did a really great job of keeping us there. And I think once Mike showed up, and I didn't think it was Mike right away. Uh, I thought that maybe like the cousins were were gonna were gonna swoop in and save the day. Like them leaving so quickly seemed like maybe it was just way too fast, uh, way too fast, uh, and that they were in the hillside somewhere and doing their thing that they so often do. Uh, and then when one guy showed up. Uh, it, it felt pretty clear to me that it was Mike. But once Mike connects with Jimmy, I think that we're only like 20 minutes into the episode or something like that at that point. And it's like a 58 minute runtime, yeah. you know, yeah. without commercial. Um, so that all happens in that first 20 minutes. And then the rest of it is the is the the journey into the dark soul of the night. You know, it's it's as you say, it's it was just very stressful, the whole thing. And I, I think Better Call Saul is often looked up as the 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 primo example of the prequel that's freaking doing it. That's like really just getting the work done. Uh, that prequels often just are not very compelling because you know where people are going to land. You know what the ultimate you know what the ultimate status quo is going to be by the climax of the piece. And like I just don't really feel that with this show. And I know that that's a, a pretty popular feeling about Better Call Saul. Uh, and the fact that. The tension, even with even with knowing they were going to survive, was so baked into like, what are these two men going to discover about themselves as they're along the way? Right. Uh, in each other. In each other. And, and for, for Mike, it's 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 now what we're discovering about something he's already discovered. Right. Like, I think like this is this is a big piece of what we've been waiting for. I do still want more, but it's a big piece of this thing of like, how has Mike made this turn? Yep. Uh, and and he articulates why in a really beautiful Jonathan Banks performance. Uh, just really absolutely excellent. And then Killed I think that monologue. And I think seeing Jimmy do what he does at the end of the episode, uh, you know, he's still broken. He's still weeping like there's earlier in the episode, not t- not terribly long before he's ready to just die and let the vultures have their way with him. Sue Hawk style. Uh, but he, he you know, he do- he does what he does. And knowing where he goes, you can just sort of imagine the chest thumping that's going to come from this. And like the attitude of like, you want to kill me, kill me. Do you know what I just went through? Do you know what I just survived? Like the lightning bolt speech he gave to Howard Hamlin. Uh, I shudder to think the, the next Jimmy monologue that he might unleash on someone even as powerful as Lalo potentially. And that is something that gives me both deep fear uh, and a measure of hope for Kim Wexler, who I think we have to start talking about. Not yet. <laughs> we have to, I just we want to say to. one final thing about everything about everything you're saying. We'll get there very shortly here. Um, I I think it's in terms of the shootout when you're mentioning Jimmy's point point of view and seeing it through his eyes and he lived through all this. All of this is very intentional. One of the things they noted on the Insider podcast is that shootout is almost every single shot, and there's a ton of them in that edit, uh, is from Jimmy's point of view or has Jimmy in the shot. We are so directly linked to him. There's only like three shots in a span of like 30 that don't have Jimmy in them. Uh, and if you go back and watch it from that perspective, you really realize how they've done everything to bring us into it being 
being Jimmy uh, and us being Jimmy and us being along for the ride. We have those moments throughout the episode, obviously, as you're talking about the way it's shot and the way that they go through these things together, um, the, the filmmaking of it. Uh, and everybody involved clearly did phenomenal work with this uh, as a character study, as just the incredible drone shot from overhead uh, of everything that had happened there, a stationary drone shot, just some really brilliant stuff. And Josh, we still had time to fit a montage in there. Can you believe it? I can. <laughs> I can. That's where the extra 18 minutes uh, comes in. Yeah, we still had time to fit a montage in there. Uh, and we still have time on this podcast to talk about everything that happened in this episode with Kim. Do you want to talk about Kim and Lalo or do you want to talk about Kim and Jimmy? I think we should talk about Kim and Jimmy first because I think one informs the other. Yeah, I, Kim tells Jimmy, don't do this. I don't want you to do this. Uh, and you and I were texting uh, after watching the episode, uh, let me see if I can pull up the text because as soon as you started talking, I knew what you were getting into. Uh, let me see if I if I can. Grab oh yeah, it because quickly. I was you know you had watched the episode before I did. Yeah, yeah. And you were basically like, okay, well, let me know. Yeah, uh, yeah. And the the text was Yeshua. Why? Why? <laughs> why? Why did Kim go visit Lalo in jail? Followed by an emoji that is just the two eyes and the flat line of a mouth of like, mm, no. And in my response to that in three lines was, e, 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 because this is bad. It's bad. And I think that Kimmy, uh, the Kimmy, uh, that Kim knows very deeply in her bones that this is too much. Uh, that, that what Jimmy's doing here, like, this is not worth it. This is not worth it. This is very, very, very dangerous stuff. Uh, and Jim has not, uh, Jimmy's not really given Kim a lot of reason to, to put some trust in him lately in terms of the it'll be fine of it all. Uh, and, and yet, like, he does what he does. He goes out and does the stuff. And uh, I don't know about you, but I didn't expect to see a scene in this episode of Kim going to visit Lalo in jail. Um, it was a surprise to me that we even saw that at all. Uh, I really thought once we were in the, 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 the journey into the Saul, uh, that that's where we would be. That we would be with Saul and Mike and we would be with them in their, in their camp out. What a friendly way of describing what they go through. But again, just in terms of culminative stuff. Uh, like even tying that back to season one to a certain degree, the Kettleman camping trip, uh, you know, like I think that just so many aspects of Better Call Saul came uh, came back to life in this one episode. Uh, I think a, a real historic episode of the series. Um, I just never expected that we were going to break back to to Kim with Lalo. And the second that that scene started up, I was like, mm, you can't see me right now, but I'm like. Well, tearing, tearing my quarantine hair out I, right now. I think, and I can't remember because of the quarantine hair, uh, not yours, mine, or just anyone's. My, I think when you first watched the episode and you texted me and said, have you watched it? I watched it. And I said, no. Um, I said, just tell me this. Is it all like just two characters or are there more than one storyline that we hit on? And I think you said something like it's a culmination of a lot of, of what has happened before. And what I was really worried about was, okay, how involved is Kim in this story? Yeah. That's what I was worried about when I texted you that. Uh, and so I was concerned that we could get there. I didn't really think about it. When we get to like, um, I don't remember what the entire runtime of the episode was with commercials and everything, but there's 57 minutes left in the episode when we have Jimmy standing in the desert. We're looking between his legs and the cousins are pulling up and Jimmy and Bob Odenkirk hilariously delivers 
Yo soy abogado. <laughs> like trying to sound confident, but not. Yeah. Uh, there's 57 minutes of episode left at that point. So I think we'd only been 18 minutes, including commercials of episode to that point. And one of those scenes, of course, was the Jimmy and Kim scene that you mentioned. And Kim basically saying, like, I don't like this. I don't want you to do it. Like that performance by Ray Seahorn is truly like showing the dimensions of Kim in that that is a level that Kim usually does not go to. It is you pulling teeth to get Kim to express her actual views on the subject in that way. She's usually so like lawyer-like and so diplomatic. She often has these explosions where she has these come to Jesus moments where she's talking to Mr. Acker. Or she's talking um, with, with Rich Schweikert or she's talking uh, with, with Kevin. Like she has these moments where she really uh, tells truth to power. But when it comes to like being emotionally vulnerable to those close to her, that is not something she typically engages in. So for her, for her to do that in that moment, um, Ray Seahorn's performance, as we always say, um, just truly phenomenal because Jimmy hugs her. That's his response to her saying that. And you see on her face the moment where she switches off when she says to herself, you know what? I don't want to be that person anymore. I just stuck my neck out. All he's doing in return is giving me a hug. I'm not going to push it. Her eyes literally blink it away. And it's gone. And I thought at that moment, okay, this is bad for Kim and Jimmy, but it's not bad for Kim necessarily, even though we had already talked about the possibility that Kim becomes the first person. Uh, This is what we what we have, Josh, in this episode is fruit of the tree of tell me everything. This is fruit of the tell me everything tree. This is what you get if you're married to Jimmy uh, McGill. Shel Silverstein, right? Exactly. No, that's the uh, that's the tree at the end of the uh, tell me everything. Um yeah, this is what you get if you're married to Jimmy McGill and you tell him to tell you everything. What you get is you get fork stabbed. Uh, you end up in a prison cell or you end up in a visitor's room, an attorney client visiting room in, in, a, in jail, uh, sticking your neck out in a way that you never should have done. <sighs> and I, I'm just given to wonder, like, how I guess she knew that Jimmy had represented a client. She did. I don't know if she knew about the alias Jorge de Guzman. So no, I don't know how she Kim, knew. Who, because she knows who it is because Kim Wexler is a badass yeah, lawyer exactly. and she figures it out. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so it's not great, uh, in all those regard, but it's funny how Lalo breaks it down. Like at first, when she says, I know who you are, he was like, what is he doing telling you my business? And she's like, we're married. And then Lalo even does this thing where he's like moving his fingers around like, Oh, I get it. You love him. He didn't come home last night. That's why you're here. So. That is both, I think, the pressure going off a little bit because he, he gets a little bit more friendly with her and he's like, oh, yeah, lucky him when he sees Kim. Uh, but I think he also realizes, okay, this is an opportunity right here. I didn't know. I don't know if I'll ever need anything on McGill, but if I do ever need anything on McGill... I have it now. I have my leverage because this is a woman who really loves him, a beautiful woman, a like a, a actualized woman who can come down here and, and speak to me this way. Like this is somebody that I know that I can use in this game that I'm playing if I have to make a move against McGill. Like she both, the pressure both went off and ratcheted up at the same time yeah. in that scene with Lalo. And it's horrible. It is horrible. Um, but I, I still think, I still think, I don't think it means curtains for Kim. I think what it, I think it might mean vacuum cleaners for Kim, but I don't think it means curtains. Uh, so at least there's that. Uh, but I am very worried about this. And I don't know why. I mean, 
when she's with Jimmy, she knows. Like Jimmy's like, I'm, I'm cooking. Everything's great. I'm making dinner. And Kim's like, you're cooking? Why is this? And of course, it's because he knows he's going to have to have a very difficult conversation with her. And she barely can say it. She's like, oh, you're a friend to the cartel. Is that yeah. it? Yeah. You know, she knows what the truth is. Uh, and just a very difficult conversation ensues. And then she really goes beyond. But I don't know if there was a better way. I mean, I can't blame her for what she did, but it's it's horrible to see how it played out. Yeah, I don't know, man. So how does she... God, I mean, it's hard to know exactly how this is going to play. Because is... I mean, Jimmy is with Mike right now. They're going to somehow get out of the out of the desert. Is Mike here to take that money for Gus? Or is Mike here to help Jimmy get that money out for Lalo because Gus wants Lalo out of prison? Like, it depends on where those chips fall. But if that money doesn't come to Lalo and Jimmy comes back to civilization and Lalo knows about Kim as a piece that he can lord over Jimmy... Then we're getting into like this kind of shitty damsel in distress territory that I really hate for the character uh, that you know don't like generally, but really yeah. hate for for yeah. Kim Wexler. Um, she just got to get vacuumed up, right? You know, like we gotta we gotta send. She's gonna she's gonna get she's gonna get a she's gotta meet Ed Galbraith, right? Like that's where we're going with this. I mean, and I don't. She, I don't know that she would take that. Do you think she would do it? She, she says to Jimmy, like, uh, like I, I want to go with you. That's her first response to this. Even though she knows the cartels on the line, and even though you know that that this is happening, like she wants to go. Like that is a thing that she wants. So I guess my question is, is that going to be a person who openly accepts or is bringing in the idea of a vacuum cleaner salesman into her life? She's going to push back against that, surely, right? Yeah, I think probably. Probably. She's worked so hard to build where she is. She's not just going to leave. And so if that's the case, I mean, I just don't know. It's What we don't want is we don't want, uh, we don't want the... <sighs> It's just like there's so many tropes that you invite, right? Like if you're saying that she can be taken away or she's taken off the board to influence, oh, that's why, uh, you know, that's why Jimmy is how he is in Breaking Bad because she was disposed, she was a disposable woman, you know, that like that, that is ultimately the genre or she was stuffed into the fridge, uh, and we found her in a certain horrible way. Like that's, that's a thing where I, I really don't want to see that I happening. I don't, I don't think, either. I don't, I don't think, think so. we're heading. I don't think we're headed in that direction, but those are the tropes, right? Like, well, we have to influence his more important character arc, so put her in a refrigerator uh, and kill her character off so that he can gain some measure of um, dimensionality from her demise. But the, like, I, this show won't do that. Surely. I don't think I don't think the show will, won't, will do that. And I think one of the things that's in favor of the show not doing that is that um, uh, Peter Gould and the the writing squad and and Gilligan are are really great storytellers, um, but not because they're great planners necessarily. I think uh, you know Breaking Bad at least very famously. I think like they know like what the thematic arc is that they want Walt to go from mild mannered chemistry teacher who is like resentful about his lot in life and is dying to somebody who is uh, finally starting to live only after he has gotten this, you know, fatal diagnosis and has started to become like the worst person humanly possible. That's what he has chosen to do with his end of days. And they know that those are the points and 
their challenge for themselves was constantly backing themselves into corners and how do we get out of it, but not being really locked into anything until they were locked into something. Uh, All of which is to say, Better Call Saul is conceived with the journey of we're taking Jimmy McGill to Saul Goodman. We're taking Mike Ehrman Trout from Tollbooth to Barrel. (laughs) (laughs) Tollbooth where he is a, a living human being to oil barrel where he is liquefied guts uh and viscera and gore uh so those are liquefied guts fring those are those are fixed points but the the how is is this is the stuff and that's the stuff that's being invented in um in writer's room sessions in like pre -pre pre-production and like once the room opens up and they start breaking the season and it's a real painstaking process on many shows and especially on really good ones. And this is a really good one. Uh, And they have years at the point that they're reaching season five to, to react to how people are reacting to the show and what's working, not just with the audience, but what what's working internally who are the moral compasses? Who are the who? What are the gravitational poles of the story? Who are the character dynamics? What are the character dynamics that need to exist? How do they need to change? What are the what are the, the, the what are the tensions that can be built, especially with the characters whose fates are unknown because of Breaking Bad? But how do you make things tense for the characters whose fates you do know? And because of all of that, I think that they have to be very keenly aware, unless they are very daft and they are not, um, that Kim Wexler is a beloved character. But beyond that, a character who is like deeply, deeply respected. We just talked about in the most recent podcast about how Kim commands respect from so many of the people in her orbit. And she probably respects herself the least, maybe second to Jimmy. Hard to say. Um I think the writers have a great deal of respect for Kim Wexler and to have her just get knocked off by the cartel to fuel the Jimmy story would be uh, probably, to my mind, the worst plot development across Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul. And like yeah. maybe maybe yep. maybe even like a game ender uh, to a certain extent. They won't, they won't do it. I really I mean, I just don't think that there's a universe where they do that. I think that there is uh, an almost absolute universe where they will do something that is horrible to Kim. Um, but I don't think it'll be that. But uh, but we have reason right now to be as scared as we've ever been for that as a possibility. Yeah. And my problem is, as I just said, I. Just don't see her as a type of character who backs off. Uh, she's the type of character who goes to jail knowing the consequences of it and does what she does. So I certainly have that concern. I, I feel like even more so than Jimmy, uh, she's a character who has that stubbornness in them uh, in a way that can really put themselves in a bad way. Uh, and can Jimmy, as you've observed, she's the one who wrecked the car, right? She's the one who has these character traits where she just won't, she won't back down if she doesn't have to. Uh, and so that's the part is where does the have to come in? And I'm, I'm certainly concerned about that. That said, provided Jimmy gets back with the money and Jimmy bails Lalo out uh, the only thing I'm concerned about is they did not do a very good job of getting rid of his car. I know. Uh, but I don't think anybody, I mean, like, what are the odds? Like, you know, they, it just doesn't, uh, it, I mean, I, I guess that 
that's something I, when they get back, Mike can go, cause that's the other thing is there's a bunch of dead bodies in the middle of the road there. Uh, so I don't know whose job it is to clean that up. I'm assuming it's Mike's. So hopefully when they get back to civilization, Mike can go Winston Wolf the shit out of that whole scene and we don't have to worry about, um, any of that coming back on them. That's the only part that I would be concerned about though. It's just that was hilarious. And by the way, like, Stuntmen all about this episode. Like if you read or listen to anything from Vince Gilligan on this, he goes into great detail about the stuntman that was involved. That uh wasn't CGI. That's a that's a that's a car stunt yeah. to roll a car like that. And they have one shot at it. They had a dozen cameras on it. Vince Gilligan was sitting in a tent watching on a monitor and he said his biggest regret while he's filming the episode is that he didn't just go walk out and see it because the film was going to be the film regardless of whether it was in the camera or in the tent or not. Uh but yeah, that was a stunt. Uh and it was stunt uh performers who were pushing the car as well. And they didn't really get it over the hill. Uh and the the fact that it got stuck was a little more poetic. Yeah. Uh, but th- that, that of course is, I mean, Mike took the plates, but I was just thinking the whole time, like his fingerprints all, all over the car. Like I'm thinking of from a CSI perspective, which maybe I shouldn't, but I just, that certainly would tie him to the scene. That said, it's in the middle of nowhere. So I really don't think anything's going to go wrong with that. So if he gets the money back and he gives it to Lalo or gives it to the, the jail and they get Lalo out on bail, I don't know why Lalo's going to really have a problem with Kim or, uh, or have a problem with Jimmy. Jimmy got the job done. Um, the problem's going to come if there's some complication with that. Uh, or if, if, I guess if Jimmy is, doesn't tell the truth to Lalo. I mean, I don't know. Do you think Jimmy will tell Kim the truth about what happened in the desert? That Presuming is, they get out? Uh, th- that is an excellent question. Uh, they have the rule. It's the rule. Yeah, but look, I mean, yeah, that's true. We don't know where the rule got. Kimmy, Jimmy does not currently know where the rule ended up that let Kim, because of the rule, went to jail to talk to Lalo. But that's proof the rule is bad. So this is the question is, will he tell her everything that happened in that desert? I I wonder if uh, Jimmy finding out from Lalo that Lalo knows about Kim Wexler and Jimmy being as, as scared as he would reasonably be and grateful to just have his life. But now having a front row seat to how dangerous this world is that he now lives in. Is there a version of this where he's like having to kind of just uh, lay in this bed he's made. And so like, it's part of the reason why like he has to like push in a little deeper into this world. And does he, um, does he do for Kim what Walter White did for Skyler in Ozymandias in, in a way that maybe like Kim doesn't fully pick up on uh, where he, you know, the, like the phone call, right. Where, uh, where Walt tries to take full credit for everything so that Skyler is not looked on as an accomplice. Does Jimmy do something like, uh, well, in old yeller, old yeller just gets killed, right? Like what's the one where, uh, spoiler alert where, uh, I guess it's like Aria with, uh, with Nymeria throw the rocks at <laughs> just Nymeria. Lets her go. Yeah. yeah. You know, is Jimmy going to throw rocks at Kim Wexler or is he going to like Harry and the Hendersons? Like, yeah, just... <laughs> I haven't seen that in way too long. It's so I don't, pretty good. I don't... Is little that Bob. What they do? Is that what he they came do back. Little Bob. Yeah, okay. yeah, sort of. Like, there's some. <laughs> the, the kids talk about this, and they let their dog go at one point, and he comes back oh, to man. prove himself. Yeah, I don't know. It's a good. That's a good thing. I mean, that's a, that has always been on the table for me with regard to Gene. Is that Gene has chosen to keep Kim at arm's length, and that by if he is calling her when he's going to take care of him, of, of 
of it himself. It's a number he could have used at any point over the years, and he didn't because things end poorly with them because he's so concerned about where he might put her that he pushes her away. Uh, and he's only just now chosen to ask her for help and bring her back in, if you will, because he has no other options. He doesn't want to run anymore, and he wants to live. So this is what he's doing. I think that's at least possible. Yeah. Um, and, and so I do agree, like the throwing of the rocks and saying run away. Um, I think that's a thing that we could see between the two of them because I, I just don't know. Uh, I just don't know. And I don't like what I don't know. And I don't I, either, I, you know, I, because it doesn't, I don't think it ends well. Um, but maybe it does. Maybe everything's fine. Um, we've had people, <sighs> we've had people observe as we've talked about through feedback that the Salamanca name dies with Hector in Breaking Bad. So we know what happens with Tuco, um, or maybe we don't. I don't know. We just, the question is, like, what becomes of all these Salamancas? Here's the thing. Like, if there is a world where, uh, where, where Jimmy, Kim, Lalo, and, say, Nacho are in the same room together, uh, it would be hard because, like, what I was going to sketch out is, like, if Lalo gets killed, if Lalo gets killed in front of Jimmy and Kim, is that now like a bridge too far for Kim? And like, she doesn't, she doesn't take this well, the way that like Jimmy may end up taking this ultimately like well as a relative term, but taking it uh, well enough to continue with the, with the, right. With the, with the career that he goes on, but that doesn't work because if Lalo dies uh, by the end of better call Saul, it has to happen in a way that Saul is at least in the Breaking Bad timeline. Not familiar cons- with concerned that Lalo could yeah. still be out there. Yeah, so that's a that's a very difficult point, uh, and it's a difficult needle to thread because if he's worried that Lalo is still out there, and he finds out from Kim that Lalo knows about Kim, then how does he square those two things away? Especially since I interpreted it, and I don't know if you did, uh, getting to the end of the episode here, um, the moment when you you have uh, so poetically discussed about how Jimmy gets up and he's got Chuck literally on his back and he's slipping Jimmy his way into getting the guy killed. Um, what ins- what to me what inspired him to do that was Mike's monologue about Mike saying I have people okay whether I live whether I die like Mike's big speech about that and that I think makes Jimmy think of Kim it makes Jimmy think of his people and it makes Jimmy think like whether he lives or dies he has to fight yep. he has to fight for Kim he has to go out actively instead of passively he can't go out on his back he can't go out on his back. He can go out dragging his ghosts and baggage around, literally, in actual bags of money and with Chuck McGill on his back. But he's got to go out for Kim's sake. He's got to go out fighting. And when he drinks the pee, of course, and he accepts who he truly is, and he accepts that he's that guy and he can stoop that low, uh, that's when he finds his most motivation to continue walking back into town and finding his way forward, having previously just given up when he kicked the cactus. It is that double moment of Mike's model that I think makes Jimmy think of Kim and it is Jimmy coming to grips with who he is as a person and shedding all his baggage in that regard being willing to carry it around with him and still face forward one foot after the other it is that which is able to propel him forward after everything that happened so Kim is an integral part of that and I think pushing her away um shows that he would love her in that way. Uh, but I just, I think it's fascinating to think about what that looks like in his world. Uh, and I, I'm wondering uh, where we end up. Do you think at this point, 
has anything changed for you as to whether we will get another version of the gene scene this season or are we going to wait for next season? I think, I think you're much more on that than I am. Um, I, I, I don't think so. Uh, I think we should start the finale that way personally or end it that way. Uh, I, I mean, we don't do knowing us know it all here, but if you'd like to, to ceremonially uh, doing know it, knowing us know it, know it's all. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yep. uh, and you, you say we'll get a gene scene uh, still this season. It we'll might get be a, Gene Belcher from Bob's Burgers. We'll Can I say a, that? We'll get a gene scene. Uh, <laughs> if you think we'll be drinking a gene scene this season, uh, then uh, you you are the and, and if you're correct, you're the knowing knowing us know it's all. And if we don't, then I am. But the truth will be that you are still the knowing it. Knowing us, know it's all. So, if we're going to get a gene scene, you can tweet at us hashtag gene scene. And if and if you think we're not going to get a gene scene, what's a good hashtag to use? Um, not gene scene. <laughs> I don't know. All right, sounds good. Not it's gene clear, scene, right? <laughs> so, if you think we're going to get another gene scene this season, if you're on my team, tweet at us using hashtag gene scene or hashtag not gene scene, depending on what team they fall on. No mentions of uh, other T's, please. Uh, but Josh, how can people tweet at us? What is wh- what? Where can we be found on on Twitter? Okay, I'm at Round Howard, like Howard Hamlin, but rounder. Uh, apparently, that. maybe actually Ron Howard. Uh, we are recording this right after watching uh, an episode of Survivor, and I had a Survivor tweet that has gone viral within the Survivor community. And <laughs> Jenna Lewis of Survivor Borneo quote tweeted my uh, tweet and said, how much do I love that a cool actor from my favorite <laughs> show is a Survivor fan? Yo, at Round Howard, I was on the first one, bro. So I think that Jenna Lewis thinks I'm literally Ron Howard, and I hope. <laughs> <laughs> I hope that we're going to be able to uh, to keep that going for a while. Uh, oh, no comment. Uh, uh, no comment. That's great. That's just yeah. great. That made my night. Anyway, at Round Howard and Antonio, who are you? I am at AC Mazzaro. Uh, Jenna Lewis, my DMs are open. <laughs> just kidding. Just kidding. <laughs> Just kidding. Oh, no. Oh, no. Just kidding. Anyway. I'm just kidding. They're not. All right. Well, better call us all. Uh, we got two more. We got two more of this, this thing, and then it's the end of the season, man. And we're getting close to the finish line. It's crazy that we've got two more after an episode like that. This it is, is like, crazy. This is like the hard home of the Breaking Bad universe. Yeah. Uh, where, like, typically, like, you get something crazy like this in your penultimates. Uh, for it to be in your anti-penultimate is uh is a is a is a real delight uh really great episode whether or not you want to call it best of the series like whatever but like uh for me indisputably lived up to the hype i i thought that it was it, it was uh, as you could tell i've i've maybe talked more on this one than i than i usually do uh i just thought there was so much rich thematic content in this episode and I'm very, very impressed with the job done by by everybody from an acting perspective. Uh, you know, Gilligan really shot the hell out of this and directed the hell out of this. The cinematographer, the cinematography, uh, just everything. Like, uh, I, I know they had extended time on making this episode. Uh, I think you said 17 days. Is that right, Antonio? Something like that. Yeah, it was, so, and it was in the middle of the summer in the desert. Yeah, you know, a real effort went into this one. And uh, maybe it doesn't quite live up to it for everybody. But for me... A million percent. It was, uh, like you said, Hard Home is, I think, a good example. Um, the the centerpiece of the episode was spending time in the desert with these two characters, and we had two insane, for this show, for any show, uh, action stunts or action set pieces. 
uh, and center that around the character work that we got in between. There aren't many shows that are doing those two things at the same time. Uh, I'm thinking like, you know, of course, the natural comparison is Pine Barrens and Sopranos and uh, episodes where characters are, are forced together in uh, elements to, to find their way through. Um, yeah, we but don't it would have- be like if Pine Barrens, it was, uh, it, was, it was Christopher trapped with like Furio. Like somebody who knew what the F to do. Yeah, that's a fair uh, point. That's a fair know, point. Like it's not like two bumbling idiots. It's two people fighting to survive, but only one of them is a bumbling idiot. Yeah, fair point. Uh, but in in this particular way, what I was going to say is those episodes are often uh, so lauded because they take so much time to spend with characters on character moments, on character building monologues and discussions and just a lot of dialogue free things uh, that are happening between two characters. And yet this had all of that, but it also had giant action set pieces and some of the most incredible vistas you're going to find on television. So full marks across the board for me as well. For sure. For sure. Um, all right. Well, uh, we'll be back next week with whatever the hell is about to happen next. Uh, do we have an episode title? <laughs> yeah, we do. Uh, Bad Choice Road. <laughs> Great. <laughs> Isn't that what we're currently riding anyway? <laughs> oh my god! Okay. I, I mean, I don't know. This is uh, I don't the the. I wasn't that. I'm going to take my horse to the Bad Choice Road right now, actually, and uh, we'll yeah. be back next week uh, to talk about Bad Choice Road and everything that uh, is aligned on that road. Thanks for listening, everybody. Take care. 